In terms of the duration, let's talk about it and address a little bit of an issue that seems to be increasing in the church. There are some that, like I've said before, deny even the concept, and I'll give you some of the reasoning behind it, and they tend to minimize the doctrine, and most churches avoid it altogether. So it's not taught very commonly. In fact, have you heard a sermon on hell in any time recent? I think if you teach, for example, the parables of Matthew 13, that's probably an appropriate time to at least explain a little bit of it. And when you come to these passages, I would not shy away from them. I think people need to know part of the biblical revelation. But anyway, one of the most common views today that goes against everything that we're talking about here is the concept of annihilationism. The arguments that they use, just so you be prepared for them, first of all, they have the biblical arguments. They'll use those little phrases in the context, those passages I just gave you, that speak of this fiery characteristic. They emphasize that If it's fiery, then it's consuming, and there comes to an end to that consumption. But I don't think the text emphasizes that. There's some that refer to this destruction. Well, if you're destroyed, then you no longer exist. That's the idea there. So they'll use those passages. The first death is physical death. The second death is, in their view, would be an extinguishing of existence. So they'll reinterpret those passages to convey the idea of an ending period. So they would see an annihilation of the soul and the spirit of unbelievers. They have both the present annihilation of ourselves at the time of death. It's more the juristic, everything. Right. Yeah, and there's a whole spectrum. I'm kind of giving you the more general and common viewpoint in terms of annihilation particularly amongst evangelicals, because evangelicals at least try to deal with the scriptures, but they have to reinterpret them. Obviously, the liberals don't appeal to scripture at all and just outright deny it. So they use theological arguments and the emphasis, obviously, how can a God of love cast a creature to torment, to eternal damnation? So the emphasis is on a God of love, which is very, very common in churches today as well. They'll also use passages dealing with the justice of God. How can God execute justice for a life that is only 70, 80 years and inflict eternal punishment? That doesn't seem just. That seems out of proportion, and it seems to go against the justice of God. Well, I think it's a misunderstanding of not only the justice of God, but the severity of sin and what God has set up in terms of purposes for life, and uh, all of the issues that go into the gospel itself. So those are the two main theological arguments that are used to, to get around it. Arguments against, most of these passages seems like the gnashing of teeth, the experiencing of torment. There seems to be a consciousness there. And every one of those passages seem to argue for a sense that I am experiencing an awful condition. So there's not a non-existent condition described, but it's one that seems to describe consciousness in all of those passages that they would use in the other way, in terms of consumption and obliteration. 
It also minimizes the concept, the biblical concept of punishment, and you can include in that minimizes the justice of God, because these are related to what he has spelled out in terms of justice. It also goes against this idea, that one passage, the Matthew 11 passage, in terms of degrees. If there's degrees, that somewhat implies not only a time frame, but a reality, an ongoing reality. And then the passages that we've been laying out here, I think these are clear passages, and many of them use the word that is usually translated eternal or forever, and most of those that I've already given you. So there's a lot of clear passages. And the evangelicals that are beginning to hold to this annihilation view have to reinterpret them. They have to depart from a literal interpretation. And remember, when you interpret literally, that doesn't mean that you deny that figures of speech are not used, but they deny the literal existence of what those figures are trying to convey. I should have given you some names. Clark Pinnock holds to this. John Stott, probably the best known. A man by the name I'm not familiar with, a Stephen Travis, but he is a proponent. And these are evangelicals. Michael Green, Philip Hughes... John Wenham, D.L. Edwards. These are evangelicals. I don't have a list of the liberals, but virtually every liberal you could include. They have a hard time with it. So, that's the idea of hell or the doctrine of hell. Let's quickly look at the doctrine of heaven. And by the way, you could even add the... uh, Another argument there, if there is an eternal place of blessing and fellowship with God, and if it's a real place and if it's eternal, some of these passages speak of both. So if it's referring to one in terms of eternal life, then it's in the same context when it refers to the other, then it's not using a different word usually. And they're both in terms of eternal. There seems to be consciousness in both concepts. So the doctrine of heaven, let me give you a quick introduction to the doctrine of heaven. The Greek word, uranos, is the Greek word for for heaven, and it's used in different senses. An interesting passage that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, seems to give us a, give us a little insight into the meaning of the word, and you need to Take a close look at the context. The same word is used in different contexts. This idea of different levels is that 2 Corinthians 12, 2, I know a man, he's describing probably himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago went a body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. What is this third heaven? And you ask the question, what is the third heaven? Well, what is the first and the second? That's got the, what we would call the air, the atmosphere. Yeah, and I think that's the other usage. In other words, the second usage, and there's some clear usages, both Old Testament and New Testament, that seem to refer to the atmosphere. One of them being in the creation account, it speaks of the birds of the heavens. In other words, the creation of flying creatures. We also have, like Deuteronomy 11, 11, but the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. So it's talking about the atmosphere. 
and it uses the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word there. There's also even in Revelation 16:21, huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon man. It's one of the judgments. References to the atmosphere, probably. References to the universe, or if you want to use the little phrase, outer space. And again, you have the creation account. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days, etc. Let them be for lights. And what he's referring to are the two light bearers, the sun and the moon. So let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to light, to give light on the earth. And it was so. So that's beyond the earth's atmosphere. And there's other references. Genesis 15:5. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens. And he's asking him to go beyond the atmosphere. Count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. He's talking about way beyond the solar system, way beyond the atmosphere, outer space itself, where stars are. So it's used in this material sense. And perhaps what Paul is referring to, maybe the first heaven is the atmosphere, beyond that, outer space, maybe a second heaven. And he's probably referring to another common usage very dwelling place of God. And in that dwelling place, it appears that ultimately angelic creatures, believers in God, will also dwell in into eternity. Deuteronomy 26.15, Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven and bless thy people Israel. Psalm 11.4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, the dwelling place of God. It seems to be beyond the universe or outside of the universe. It seems to be probably in an eternal state. I see the creation, including the entire universe, and including time as part of what God has created. And there's a realm outside of the universe. And I think that's where God dwells. So and could we call it another dimension? Could that might I've heard people use that. That'd be the best way to probably describe it. Yeah. Another way of describing it. Jesus says in John three thirteen, and no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man, referring to himself. What do you think of other things? No evidence for it. So Outside, what we'll talk about outside is really an extension of one universe that is ours. Oh, yeah. Just you know, black holes and all those scientific yeah. things fit within the context. Yeah, one so universe. So there's ours and that's external mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I would say there's a realm, but in terms of multiverses, as a, you know, coming more common as the theory of evolution falls apart, <laughs> it's this universe that was conducive to the workings of evolution, and there might be other universes out there that are different or whatever. But it's just a its a theory that people are but based on no evidence whatsoever. Just trying to, I think, explain and get away from some of the theological implications of the Big Bang and other things. So one universe, two different realms. Now, we believe in two different realms. So that's a brief introduction. Let's take a look at... 
the best description of probably heaven, and it's phrased as a new heaven and earth. And whether, I don't know, I, it, it's a description that is describing something that it's hard to be dogmatic on. It's highly metaphorical for one thing, using images. And another, we have nothing to kind of relate to it because we've never experienced it. And I think when John and others are writing about it, they're doing the best they can to describe the visions that they have of it. But in the book of Revelation, we have the new heavens and the new earth. Whether this is a recreating of the present heavens and present earth, it's hard to tell. I think the millennial kingdom is analogous to the original creation. And it appears to me that the new heavens and the new earth is something radically even different from the millennial kingdom. I make a distinction between the two, as I've already said when we talked about the millennium. So let's take a look at Revelation 21 and the first part of 22. And let's look at some of the passages in there. We'll have to be brief. There's different views concerning it. Some, and I would reject the first one, the view that it's just a description of the millennium. Revelation 21 through 22.5, a further explanation of the millennial kingdom, what it appears to be. The argument against it is it seems to be distinguished from chapter 20. Chapter 20 appears to be clearly earthly. And then you take all of those Old Testament passages that speak of the kingdom that I gave you last time. Yes, it's a radically different environment, a radically different place than what we experienced before the coming of Christ. And I emphasize some of the scientific aspects of it in terms of, well, in, in contrast to what we do know as opposed to what we don't know <laughs> and what we might surmise from a resurrection body. So the description of the millennium I think is literal and earthly as we emphasize. What we have described in Revelation 21 and 22 is far beyond that. So I don't think it's the millennial kingdom. I make a distinction. Some would uh, view it as the habitation of millennial saints, and they would see it. Now, I don't have too much of a problem with that one. I think that's possible as well, because resurrected saints appear to be able to come in and out of the physical realm, like Jesus did. In other words, he appeared, he seemed to disappear, he seemed to manifest himself in ways that men were not able to recognize him, and yet on other occasions he manifested even the wounds in his hands and on his side. He had Thomas put his fingers there. So a resurrection body seems to be very, very different. So this habitation of millennial saints and some that hold this view see it coming down and it seems like we reside there. So they would hold that Revelation 21 and 22 describe that habitation, if you will. I think probably the best view is because there's other passages that refer to a heavenly place. We're citizens of heaven, for example, Paul himself. You know, we're not of this world. We, we are citizens of another realm. And I think it's a description and probably one of the few and best descriptions of the eternal state. 
Now, one of the problems that we have here, if you go to Isaiah, Isaiah uses the phrases new heavens and new earth. So is the Revelation description different from the Isaiah description? Because in Isaiah, Isaiah seems to equate the new heavens and new earth with the millennial kingdom. Even though in Isaiah it's not millennial, but the kingdom. So how do we resolve that? Well, I resolve it by saying that most of the Old Testament passages that refer to the kingdom don't seem to separate, don't seem to distinguish the millennial kingdom from the eternal state. They seem to merge them together. Much like a lot of the passages that speak of Messiah don't distinguish between a first coming in humility and to suffer as opposed to the second coming of a glorious and very different coming. They merge them together. And I think Isaiah is doing something similar in terms of the kingdom and the, and the eternal state. So they seem to be merged. And there does seem to be, in other words, there's a continuation, although the book of Revelation seems to give a specific time frame, and it's only the book of Revelation that gives us this time frame. We have no time frame in the Old Testament. So it's not till you get to the New Testament that we seem to have a distinction between the two. Does that make sense? Just like it's not till we come to the New Testament and we have a distinction between the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. So further revelation enlightens us and gives us a, a more complete picture of not only Messiah, but now a distinction between a millennial period, which I would see as part of history, and an internal state that goes on, if you want to even think in terms of time, on into eternity, if you will. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how I would resolve that. So I think Isaiah is kind of giving us a composite. And remember, there's that concept of the kingdom of God that never stops, never starts, is eternal, always reigns. God always reigns. He has just simply delegated earthly rulership to mankind over different periods in different ways at different stages, etc. So that eternal kingdom essentially becomes the only kingdom in the eternal state. There's no earthly kingdom because there's a new heaven and a new earth. And whether that is even related to the material, we have no way of knowing. Does that make sense? So I think what we have in Revelation 21 and first part of 22 is a description of heaven or the eternal state, however you want to describe it. And in this eternal state, basically, primarily from, because we have the most detailed description is in these two chapters. You have little passages here and there. We won't have time to look at all of them, but this is somewhat of a, kind of a little brief outline of this passage. I think 21, 1 through 8, is the creation of this new heaven and new earth. And by the way, Second Peter seems to, to indicate where it talks about the destruction of the present heavens and the present earth, it seems like that is done away with. And there's a totally new creation, new heavens and new earth. And by the way, Peter uses that same phrase, a new heavens and new earth. And it seems to be after this fiery destruction of the present cosmos. So verses 1 through 8 give us a description And more specifically, 2 through 8 is a new Jerusalem. 
and a new city, 21, 9 through 21. And if we had more time, we would contrast first century Jerusalem, about 1.4 to 0.5 square miles. Babylon, best archaeological evidence, 13.8 by 13.8 square miles. Nineveh, 11.5, 11.5. Alexandria, there's the numbers for it. There's Albuquerque. All of these cities are smaller than Albuquerque in ancient times. Did you get those like off a of map? Where did you get the dimensions? Some of them, I think, from archaeological stuff. Okay. And the Albuquerque, it's just my estimate from city map. New Jerusalem, here you go. And this is one of the reasons why I think we're talking about something that's just totally out of the realm. And the way the numbers that are given there, it's a cube. Not that we couldn't build a city that way, but it seems like gravity is not an issue or something. I don't know. Something's different. I guess that helps. What's the increment here? Miles? The equivalent, yeah. Can't remember how the passage passage phrases it. Yeah, those are in miles. And the city is laid out as a square, actually a cube, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. That's the uh, interpretation. I calculated 1,400. Its length and its width and its height are equal. That's why it's a cube. That's, that's usually the question. How are we all going to fit? There's it's huge. Answer. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, I think we overestimate the number that are going to be there. A lot of people think everybody's going to be there. The citizens are described 21, 22 through 27, and uh, stay with C's there. I call this the circumstances, chapter 22, 1 through 5. Kind of a brief broad outline of the chapter. The inhabitants, obviously God himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Angels, the ones that are unfallen, they're holy. And by the way, the book of Revelation gives you glimpses of the eternal state, if you will. Revelation 5, where there's myriads and myriads, chapters 4 and 5, myriads of angels. Old Testament Gentiles are promised a heavenly state. Old Testament Israelites. And by the way, even in Revelation chapter 22, and he showed me a river of water, river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations, which is interesting, which just means that in the overall plan of God, ethnicity and languages and background still have significance, even in the eternal state. So nations, or you could, the word ethnos or ethne is there, so Gentiles, non-Jewish. That's why I call attention to it. So we have Old Testament Gentiles, and then you have the church, obviously, lots of promises, or citizenship is in heaven. And then Gentiles and nations of the kingdom, they come out of the kingdom, because remember, everyone will stand before and give an account, but those are unbelievers, but those that go through the kingdom, the nations are there as well, and the Jews of the kingdom. So that accounts pretty much... Everyone, every believer of all time. And there's some specific verses for several of those. Conditions, very quickly. Let's go over them. 
And you can find all of these in the book of Revelation, uh, 21 through 22. Totally different environment, nothing to compare it to, radically different from anything that we experience. It's a new heaven and a new earth. Everything is better. Philippians 1.23 says that it's far better than anything that we can conceive of. The fellowship is emphasized. Fellowship with the Father, the Son, emphasis on fellowship. 22.4, and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. This is God himself. Great illumination, full knowledge, lots of light, no darkness, freedom, like never experienced before. And there's lots of specific things in there. If we had more time, we could look at them, like security, protection, guidance, comfort. That verse that I just read for the healing of the nations, it's not that you get sick, but there seems to be a maintaining of high level of well-being and health, if you will. What about sleep? Does that disappear? Seems to be, yeah. Is there, I mean, because I've never really seen an indication of it. But. Sleep is the product of the second law of thermodynamics, so I think that's turned off. You'll have optimum energy. Wow. No need for replenishing. No evil, for sure. That's clear in the passage. This cleansing ideas or ongoing New life, eternal life, no curse, very important. Remember, the curse is partially lifted during the millennial kingdom. This is one of the distinctions in the eternal state. Death is done away with, so there's no curse whatsoever. But there is activity. There is service. So service, work, is not evil. It's the the curse is the toilsome aspect of it. In fact, it's... Work and activity is, is fulfilling when it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the eternal state. Any questions on any of that? Yeah, the descriptions are just, including hell, the descriptions are just hard to conceive. I mean, it's hard in our minds to conceive of ongoing punishment and ongoing torment. That's why we come up with these alternative ideas. And it's also hard to conceive, for example, you know, no need for sleep because we're so used to this present existence that we have no concept of what it's to be outside of the physical realm. But we will see. We will see it someday. Well, let's conclude by I'm going to give you just a quick overview of the book of Revelation first. And then I'd like to focus on the uh, Olivet Discourse. These are the two most important portions of Scripture and an entire book on eschatology. So I think it's good to have a little idea of what is contained in those. And I gave you an outline there of both of them. I've exegeted both. I feel real comfortable with the outline there. And I've done the Olivet Discourse a couple of times as well. One of the things I stress in both the Book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse is what we've stressed throughout the course. And I think if you stress the idea that eschatology is Jewish, 
you will avoid a lot of problems in the interpretation of the individual passages. Particularly, but not excluding the book of Revelation, but particularly the Olivet Discourse. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is speaking to Jewish disciples that were familiar with the Old Testament that had an eschatology. They had an Old Testament eschatology. That's all they had. And Jesus is building on that and explaining how this eschatology is going to work out. So what he's giving them is an expansion of Jewish eschatology. We have all kinds of problems when we try to inject these other ideas related to the church. Now, the church is related to Jewish eschatology, but that's not what Jesus is describing. The church did not exist when Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse. There's no church. It's not till the day of Pentecost. And it's not even until probably after Acts chapter 15 that the disciples themselves began to understand what the church was all about. So the disciples had no concept of the church. Now, he mentioned that he would build his church in chapter 16, but in their thinking, you know, they had no concept of what he's talking about. I don't, because they're coming from a Jewish perspective. So Jewish eschatology emphasizes the failure of Israel. This is predicted. I've said this over and over. Predicted even before the nation is a nation. And it also talks about discipline the discipline of the nation, that's their history. The history of Israel is they have failed to do what God called them to do, and they've experienced discipline over and over and over. That's Jewish eschatology. They also will have a particular period of time called tribulation, and many of those passages that pertain in the Old Testament to this severe period are also in the context of the time when it's a time of Jacob's trouble, but it's also the time when God is going to use that to draw the people to himself, the nation of Israel. So the tribulation, as we stressed, is Jewish. And during that tribulation, there's going to be an ultimate restoration. There have been periods of restoration, but there's an ultimate one that takes place during that tribulation. And Daniel gives us specific time frames. And it'll be completed with the coming of the Messiah. This is Jewish eschatology. These are the major themes of the book of Revelation, the major themes and the major outline of not only the book of Revelation, but the Olivet Discourse. And when Messiah comes, the Jews expected him to establish a kingdom. That's Jewish eschatology. And that's a thumbnail sketch of the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation. And by the way, if you want, I'm not going to give you an introduction to the book. If you want a pretty complete introduction to the book of Revelation, I've got, I think, a three-part introduction that I did for the New Testament survey. So it's under the New Testament survey, under Revelation and I give all the background and an overview as well. And I'm going to give you just a little part of the overview today. Similarly, for the Olivet Discourse, I've got an exposition of the whole discourse. How many parts was it, Jim? You were there? I can't remember. Um, 35 or so parts to the Olivet Discourse. And I'll give you kind of a thumbnail sketch of that whole thing. But if you want the whole thing, it's on the website as well, along with all the PowerPoint slides. So that's Jewish eschatology. I break down the book of Revelation into three parts. This is all on your outline sheet. 
it all, eschatology, the whole Bible, world history is about Jesus Christ, so also in the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we have a glimpse of that revelation in chapters 1 through 3, and it's Jesus Christ among the churches. I think structurally those three chapters hang together. Part of the reason they hang together is because we have a vision. We have a vision of Jesus Christ, and that vision, parts of it are repeated to each of the seven churches. So it kind of all goes together. A very distinct part is chapters 4 through 18. I describe that as the great tribulation that comes from Jesus Christ. So Jesus is still the focus. He's the one that opens the seals. He is the one that is executing judgment. And it's a dreadful period of time. This is that period of time that is prophesied from Leviticus 26 throughout the Old Testament. And it's very specific. The book of Revelation doesn't give us the seven-year time frame, but it breaks it up into two, three-and-a-half-year periods, and it repeats it over and over and over. And different things take place over these different three-and-a-half years. And they come out of the book of Daniel that specifies it as a week of years. So the book of Revelation is just following from the Old Testament. And that's what John is doing. And he's giving it to the church so the church can know what eschatology is all about. And even though it's talking about eschatology, it's not dealing with the church except chapters 1, 2, and 3. And that's the relationship. But chapters 4 through 18, that's Jewish. Church is not there. That's why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. There's another distinct, the third part of the book of Revelation, 19 through 22, is everything is wrapped up here. Consummation, and it's by Jesus Christ. At his, beginning with his coming, he's going to wrap up world history. Consummation of all things. So a simple three-part breakdown of the book. Here's the book of Revelation on one sheet, on one timeline. And this is the same timeline that we use to describe Jewish eschatology. Chapter 1 deals with what John saw in the first century. In fact, this is a breakdown of 119. He saw a vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And now he is describing the things which are, the things that you have seen. Jesus instructs him, write down the things you have seen. That's the vision that John just saw. And the things which are, present tense, that's chapters 2 and 3, that describe churches that existed in the first century, seven churches, little letters from Jesus Christ himself. Those letters, as I just said, are related to that vision In other words, the one with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth from the vision, write this. So these are letters from Jesus himself. And I think we interpret them just like you would interpret the letters of Paul, except the uniqueness is that these are from the Lord himself. And then chapter 4 begins a description of this seven-year period of time, broken down into two, three-and-a-half-year period. The emphasis of chapters 4 through 11 seem to be primarily events. Not entirely, but primarily. So also, the emphasis of 12 through 18 are primarily the personages, the major personages. And especially chapters 12 and 13. But I think you can expand it to all the way to 18. 
and you have a series of three judgments during that period of time, seven seal judgments, six of them give a panoramic picture of that seven years, at least that's the way I take it. And then there are trumpet judgments, which come out of the seventh seal or seem to be the content of the seventh seal. And those are described in chapters eight and nine, the seals in chapter six. And I see them as parallel with the seals at the end part. And then chapter 16, we have seven bowl judgments that are poured out. That's kind of a, an overview of that seven-year period of time. And then sequentially, notice it's following a Jewish sequence of events after this period of tribulation, which is the period where Israel is restored, time when God is going to save the nation of Israel. And that will be completed in chapter 19 at the second coming. We have a description of the second coming. Jesus will not only end the tribulation, but he will come to establish a kingdom. That kingdom is referred to in chapter 20. Notice the sequence. Notice the chronology. It's only John that describes it as a thousand-year period of time, so it's only John that makes it millennial. And then, as I just said, concerning the eternal state, that's chapters 21 and 22. And there's an epilogue at the end of chapter 22, or a conclusion to the book. So there's the book of Revelation on one slide. More detail to chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have, a obviously, an introduction. I call that a prologue and a benediction, a two-part introduction. Prologue to the entire book and a benediction to the triune God. We have the vision of Jesus Christ, 9 through 20, that I've just been referring to. It's a vision of the glorified, resurrected Christ. And the emphasis is nature or his perfections and then related to that vision are these seven letters from Christ and these are seven churches that existed in the first century and they seem to have been given in somewhat of an oval or a kind of a circular pattern and this some suggest that this is perhaps the route that the one that delivered these letters took in delivering the seven letters and the content of the whole book to these seven churches. On your outline sheet, I've uh, summarized the essence of uh, the issue that Jesus addresses to these seven churches. Ephesus lost its first love, so it's a reprimand. Most of them have words of commendation, Most of them have words of condemnation, you might say. And they also have other elements as well. Those are the main things. The church at Smyrna, there are no negatives issued to it, no condemnation. But it's mainly one of praise because they're a persecuted, purified church, suffering church. Pergamum is a worldly church, so there's lots of words of rebuke, if you will. There's also, in all of these, promises for repentance. Thyatira, apostasy, is the main issue there. Sardis is the worst of all of them. It's a dead church. Philadelphia seems to be a ministering, missionary, outreach church. And then Laodicea is the apostate church. Chapter 4, this is the way I divide the 4 through 18 
an emphasis on a seventh sealed scroll. That's four through seven. Chapters four and five are a heavenly scene. John seems to be either through vision or in some way taken up to heaven, verse four. That's not a description of the rapture. Some people say, well, that's the rapture. Well, this is Jewish eschatology. The rapture's not there. But it does coincide, I believe, with a pre-tribulation rapture view. And what John is seeing is probably what we will see after we are raptured, the church is raptured. Because he has a heavenly scene and he sees elders. They are probably representatives of the church. And he sees angels and he sees a throne. So what he's seeing is basically the foundation for what God is going to do from 6 through the end of the rest of world history. So out of this throne comes lightning and thundering. In other words, there's going to judgment is going to come out and God is worshiped because this is worshipful. God is going to deal with sin in an ultimate way. That's what we yearn for. Chapter 6 we see an earthly scene where these judgments begin to be unfolded and we have the seals in 6. And then seven, we have one of the only positive chapters in the whole book concerning this period of time. We have the the raising up of 144,000. They're Jewish, 12,000 from each tribe. And then we have the greatest revival the world has ever seen, described in verse 9 of chapter 7. But it's all related to the opening of these seals and what's taking place on earth. Chapter 8 and 9 deal primarily with trumpet judgments, other issues in there, but that's probably the dominant theme of 8 through 11, and specifically they're described in 8 and 9. Then we have a heavenly explanation where John is given a series of visions of the major participants during this period of time, chapters 12 and 13 particularly, and also kind of culminating events, the fall of Babylon, the ultimate evangelization through an angel, ultimate judgment in that past in chapter 14, kind of a heavenly commentary or explanation. 15 through 18, final plagues, final plagues, and specifically the bold judgments described as plagues. On a timeline, Putting, trying to put all the pieces together, we have a covenant, not specifically referred to, it's alluded to in the first seal judgment, but that comes out of Daniel. Probably the raising up of two prophets, described in chapter 11, who prophesy, and the first fruits of their prophecy are, or prophesying, are the raising up of the 144,000. And all of those are specific in terms of the very beginning. Within perhaps hours, probably not more than many days from the very signing of this covenant. The result of the ministry of the 144,000 are conversions. That's chapter 7. And these conversions will take place throughout this seven-year period. There's different ways of putting these passages together. This is the one that makes most sense to me. Another major theme are the persecution of all believers during this period of time. Lots of persecution. In fact, greater persecution than at any point in history. This is another holocaust. 
not only of Jewish people, but all believers. Those that believe in Christ that are from Gentiles and obviously those that are Jewish as well. A specific event is called out. It's called an abomination. That's from Jesus. It's described in Revelation 13, I believe. And it's specific to the middle. That comes out of Daniel in terms of the time frame. But the one that creates this abomination says that he's given authority for three and a half years. And that's probably the first three and a half. And then his kingdom seems to begin to fall apart, disintegrate. Then we have some final judgments, the fall of Babylon. And while all this is going on, you have the six seal judgments, the seven trumpets, seven bowls going on as well. And the final battle is the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus himself ends that with the second coming. So that's a summary and a timeline of the major events These are all described in the book of Revelation. And then we have the consummation by Jesus Christ, 19 through 22. Second coming is the beginning of all that. He ends that seven years. And when he comes, he introduces a millennial kingdom. And I've said that we don't have a lot of details. We just have mainly the time frame of it. And the concept of saints reigning. And then there's a couple of major events at the end, a final rebellion and a great white throne judgment. And I believe that ends world history. So chapters 21, 1 through 22, 5 is a description of the eternal state. And on another timeline here, we have church age, which is not described in the book of Revelation. And you can put us there today. We don't know when these events begin to unfold. The next one from our perspective would be a rapture, seven-year tribulation, a return, and then a kingdom of a thousand years, and then we have an eternal state. And the book closes with an epilogue, chapter 22, 6 through 21, final instructions to John to deliver this to the seven churches, and there's praise and worship there as well. Major theme of the whole book is praise and worship. Another major theme are angelic creatures. You can develop an entire angelology in the book of Revelation. So there's a thumbnail sketch of the book, an outline your outline sheet. Let's take a quick look in the time remaining in the Olivet Discourse. You're going to see the same themes, same major topics, and more than likely, the foundation to the book of Revelation, John's foundation was when he heard Jesus Christ lay out the Olivet Discourse. And obviously from the book of Revelation, John received further visions, further revelation, and that's why the book of Revelation is more detailed. In fact, quite a bit more detailed than the entire book. But I think John's foundation to the whole book of Revelation, I think the Olivet Discourse, put the whole thing together for John, and then he just expands with the greater revelation that he receives. And he's reporting things that he saw in vision form. This is a view of Temple Mount from a spot where perhaps the disciples were observing in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, you might turn there. I'm going to quickly look at just a couple passages from there. And again, this is a Jewish exposition. Jesus is speaking to Jews, and obviously he's Jewish, and he's giving them an exposition from the Old Testament. 
He doesn't quote, per se, Old Testament passages. He alludes to some, but all of this can be found in the Old Testament. And some of it is new revelation, particularly in terms of the sequence. So the Olivet Discourse, first you have to talk about the setting to it. And you could uh, use, and when I taught it, I basically gave an overview of the whole Gospel of Matthew, because I think one of the main things that Matthew is is relaying to the audience, to a Jewish audience, by the way. And by the way, the Olivet Discourse is not exclusive to Matthew. It's in the synoptics as well, the other two synoptics. But the setting, you need to kind of give an overview of Matthew because what Matthew is explaining is that Jesus is the messianic king that is prophesied in the Old Testament. Every Jew... When the Messianic king arrived, every Jew expected the Messiah to establish a kingdom and to deliver them from the domination of whatever Gentile nation was over them. In the first century, it would have been the Roman Empire. So they expected a different kingdom and the disrupting of the oppressing kingdom of the Roman Empire. So what Matthew is doing is proving Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And if Jesus is the Messiah, then the kingdom must arrive with him. But what happened? Well, the nation rejected the king. So part of the setting of the Olivet Discourse is an explanation. And Matthew gives two chapters, 21 and 22, to show explicitly, now he's already shown the progression to get to this point, but this is towards the end of Christ's life, just preceding the crucifixion. Things have transpired such that now we're here and the Messiah is going to ultimately die. So the nation has rejected their Messiah. Matthew is beginning to do is to explain, well, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? Chapter 23, Jesus returns the favor. He's rejected by the nation, and now 23, he rejects the nation. And obviously, that's the passage that precedes the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse comes directly out of chapter 23. And now, it's a done deal. The nation has rejected the Messiah. The Messiah has rejected his people, at least that generation. Well, what happened to the kingdom? I mean, what's what's going to become of the kingdom? Well, that's the, the Olivet Discourse. And we have a specific introduction to the Olivet Discourse in 24, 1 and 3. And Jesus came out from the temple where he was addressing Jewish people, Jewish leaders particularly. And he'd already said that that their temple was going to be made desolate. In other words, it's going to be destroyed essentially. He predicts the destruction of the temple. And in verse 24, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And they were magnificent. Herod's temple took 46 years to renovate. And it was a tremendous spectacle, you might even say. There's descriptions in Josephus and ancient writers that describe a very glorious picture there. So it's natural that the disciples would come and, and he's already spoken of the temple and in some ways alluded to something's going to happen here. 
And in verse 2, he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. What? What's, what are you talking about here? You're the Messiah. We believed in you. You can't destroy the temple because the temple is at the heart of the kingdom. Remember we saw that? It's part of the Davidic covenant. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples, verse 3, came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. They anticipated he would return. Some of it sunk in. They knew what he's talking about. They knew that he's dealing with eschatology here. And the main issue in the Olivet Discourse is if, if Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? So the setting... The time is after the nation rejected their Messiah, after Christ rejects the nation, two days before the crucifixion. The crucifixion was on Friday, then this is Wednesday evening. The audience, and this is crucial, Jewish disciples with a Jewish background, with a Jewish understanding of the Old Testament, with Jewish eschatology. Location, Mount of Olives, looking in the other direction, that's the Mount of Olives, so somewhere on the hillside, perhaps even on the top, as they went down the Kidron Valley and up, Jesus is delivering the Olivet Discourse. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. They're looking down, perhaps, now this is an aerial shot, but They've got a vantage point that gives them a picture of the temple, and Jesus has been discussing that. And he's just announced to them that not one stone of this magnificent temple will be left standing. And there's a reconstruction, a model of the first century temple mount. And there's two words that are used in chapter 23, 16, and 17, naas. And in that passage, he's talking about a desolation taking place. He's talking about the temple itself. He's alluding to what Second Thessalonians 2 talks about, Antichrist desecrating the temple, setting himself up as God. That's the abomination that makes desolate. So Naas is the temple itself, the building itself. The broader complex here, Iran, That's the word that's used in verse 24. And he's saying this whole complex is going to be destroyed. And it was in the first century. So in that same spot, he's talking about two different events. Yes, even in the context. Or two, he's referring to two two particular... And so this is where confusion comes because people may... Sometimes, yeah. And the nature, it's mainly prophetic. And we have parallels in the other... The other two synoptics, so all three synoptics have it. John does not have it. Instead, John gives the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse is more oriented to what the disciples are going to have to do after his death and resurrection and even ascension. And he's laying out basically church principles, even though he doesn't use the word there. So the difference between the upper room discourse and Olivet discourse The Olivet Discourse is prophetic. The Upper Room Discourse is preparatory for the ministry that they will have for 2,000 years, at least. So that's the setting. And like all Jewish eschatology, it has to deal with this horrendous period of time. And 
in terms of the outline of the Olivet Discourse, that's verses 4 through 28 of chapter 24. This is on your outline as well. And just to summarize that portion, we have the same chronology, same time frame. Jesus doesn't break it down in terms of uh, time, but he does break it down into two halves, and he refers to the passage that makes clear what those two halves refer to. I describe verses 4 through 14 as the beginning of birth pangs. The beginning of birth pangs, because that's the phrase Jesus uses. So they become more intense, more frequent, if you will. He's using the analogy of a woman in labor, about to give birth. And as it gets closer to the birth, more intense and more painful it it is for, for the woman. So he's using an analogy there to describe the severity. It's going to get severe, worse and worse as time goes on. And the reason that's the first three and a half, not because Jesus pinpoints the number of years, but because he refers to something in the middle in verse 15. He refers to what Daniel describes as the abomination that makes desolate. He's referring to Daniel 9. And Daniel says that it's in the middle of this seven-year period. And then he describes in verses 15 through 29 a great tribulation that the world has never seen. Nothing like it ever or will ever see in the future. So I call that last three and a half years great tribulation, running all the way to verse 29. And we have in this beginning of birth pangs, we have a description of Christ's and Antichrist's. These parallel the seal judgments, and that's one of the arguments for putting all of this within that seven-year period. So I don't see any fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse in the church age. Now, we may see things leading up to these, but not fulfillment. So I'd be careful in using that. I kind of made a big point of that when we were talking about the tribulation. And there's wars and rumors of wars. That parallels Revelation 6, 3 through 4. And we have famines and pestilence as mentioned in Matthew's account. That parallels what we have in Revelation 6, 5 and 6. Death be the product. That's not emphasized in the Olivet Discourse, but it would fit in terms of a parallel. There's martyrs. Jesus deals with that also in the parallel is Revelation 6, 9 through 11. These are in that portion called beginning of birth pangs. So that's the tribulation period. So many people are looking for these birth pangs before the rapture. They hear of a war, they hear of an earthquake, and until the rapture, I mean, we shouldn't even be looking for it. No. Now, there's no signs that precede the rapture. And then we have a description, just like the book of Revelation, of the second coming. And this is the second most important description of the second coming, verses 29 through 31. And Jesus specifically says, after the tribulation of those days, referring back to that period he's just described. We have a glorious description of the second coming there. So back to the chart here. There's the abomination that makes desolate in the middle, beginning of birth pangs, great tribulation. And then chapter 24, 29 through 31, second coming. So we have same sequence. And chapter 25, we have, it starts off with giving us verse 1. Then, 
after he's given some parables, after the description of the second coming, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins. Kingdom of heaven. Parables. So he gives three parables, and they're all related to the kingdom of heaven. So you could include them describing some aspect of this thousand years, at least the beginning of it. And even in verse 46, he touches, last verse there, on the eternal state, eternal punishment and eternal life. So it fits the same sequence as the book of Revelation, and that's Jewish eschatology. The last part from chapter 24, 32 through 25, verse 46, are applications. These are parables. And the first set of parables in chapter 24 are applications relating to the second coming. And then and we have several illustrations. And go to the last slide here. We have applications for the kingdom. Three parables there, so a series of parables. And that's your outline for the Olivet Discourse. And that's eschatology. Verse 40 of 24. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding. Yes. I've heard so many present that as that's the rapture. No. I understand yeah. it's not. Yeah. That's what they they're, they're, right. I mean, I even had a, uh, a seminary class at a, at a seminary that the professor, we were doing the uh, mm-hmm. New Testament overview. So right. That's your clear picture of a rapture that you can get from that. I was like, yeah. I don't think that's right. But no. <laughs> no. Again, you have to stress we're talking about Jewish eschatology. And if we're talking about Jewish eschatology, the rapture pertains to the church. Yeah. The church is not there. The church, and if you pre, was he pre-tribulational? I bet he was pre-tribulational. Yes. Well, if it's pre-tribulational, this is tribulation. This is yeah. a description of tribulation. And what we have is what is not unusual in terms of periods of judgment. You have some that are taken. You have some that are left. Yeah. And the ones that are taken are the ones that are swept away in judgment, not up in rapture. And the ones that remain are the ones that are preserved. And you'd also use even the concept of salvation here. It's talking, some of the salvation passages that are referred to here are surviving the tribulation. In other words, the physical judgments and the persecution and all that. So the ones that remain are the ones that remain that enter into the kingdom in mortal body. That's the proper way. Because of the whole context. Otherwise, all of a sudden, you're dealing with a church in yeah, the middle of this I, whole I, thing? I agree. I agree. But that, yeah. was, that was the and, and it made the connection that this is what Paul was talking about when he says the gathering in Thessalonians. Yeah, totally out of context. Different word. I mean, taken, I understand that. Yeah, and I can't remember. There's a, there's a different word there Yeah, as well. A Greek word. I don't remember. Well, there's also the verse before which says, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then it immediately falls into yes. the Yeah, all the details of the context just totally yeah. are unrelated yeah. to the, the rapture. Yeah, and, and, and saying that that's what the, the coming of the Son of Man was, was the rapture. Make, making that, not making mm-hmm. the connection that this is invisible. Right. You, you'll see it take place. Anyway, it's just, thank you for it. Yeah. No problem. Jim, why don't you close for us? Father, thank you, all for the uh, hard work that Ray has invested in this class. He has been available for your spirit to teach us. I pray, Father, that uh, we as students uh, receive uh, this information. We'll build on it in some way that helps us uh, better communicate with the world around us. Some would be saved. Some would be rescued from, from falling away. 
or that we might uh, be equipped to help some. So we give you thanks, we give you praise for revealing to us what you have in store as far as history is concerned. And we look forward to the blessed hope at time in Christ will, and we will ultimately live as the eternal citizen of Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ray. It was fun. You guys were a good...